Well, tonight we have uh, a study that I've entitled The Conclusion uh, because we're going to be running to the end of the book. Uh, we have focused on chapters 1 through 6 where Solomon makes observations. He looks at life. He um, doesn't like what he sees, that's for sure. It's pretty easy to, to see. And But they're just observations, and he talks about them. From chapters 7 to 11, just before we get to chapter 12, including chapter 12, uh, <clears throat> he moves from making observations to giving advice. That's why from chapter 7 on, uh, the book looks like the book of Proverbs. You have these different statements, one right after another, uh, just like the book of Proverbs. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But we want to jump over chapters 7 and go to, uh, from chapter 7 to 12 and go to the end of chapter 12, if you'll turn your Bible there, where we get to see Solomon. And as we bring his words to a close, what we notice is how the book ends. And that's really the conclusion. I had never uh, taught through the book of Ecclesiastes before. Uh, I had gone there to different places. I had read it before, but just never uh, taught through it or preached through it. Uh, and so you've been good guinea pigs. Thank you very much. But as I get to the end and I have this conclusion, uh, if I ever do this again, I will start with the conclusion because it kind of puts a frame around understanding the whole book, and I think it really will help. But we want to look at it together. Uh, it's an interesting conclusion, and uh, looking at God's Word is always good, so let's have prayer, and then we'll get right into it. The conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for uh, the Word of God that gives to us not only truth about you, truth about life, truth about ourselves, and Father, we have learned to realize that you are so great. We can never understand who you are, but we are glad for who you are. You are so vast in your attributes, so perfect, so limitless. And Father, at the heart, not only holy, but very good. And we look forward to the time when by your grace through Christ, you will enable us to leave this world and stand in your presence. Uh, all we can do is marvel at what that will be for all of your children, but we want to thank you that our salvation is secure in Christ. We pray tonight as we bring this to a conclusion of sorts, we're not done with our studies, but as we look at this conclusion, that you would be pleased to bless us and help us to be thankful for what we're going to learn tonight. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 7 through the end of the book, Solomon talks about the same things, but he does it in a different format. He does it in a different format. He does it in proverb format. And so even though we're not going to be covering those chapters, uh, we already have, in a sense, he will be repeating himself, when we begin the book, in the first 11 verses, there is a man who's referred to as the editor who begins by saying the preacher, 
who was king of Israel, and he's introducing the book. He is uh, referred to again as the editor. The reason I share that with you is that in chapter 1, verse 12, Solomon begins to speak. And it is very obvious because of all the references to I, I did this, I had this, I accomplished this. And it's very personal. It is Solomon speaking. The beginning of the book, there is this little introduction by a man we call the editor. And at the end of the book, he wraps things up the editor. So they're not Solomon's words, but they are God's words. All of God's words here in the scriptures are equally authoritative. But there is a difference, and we'll see that today. And what we have is we have a man who, having put all of these sayings together from Solomon, he now gives his conclusion as he looks back in the book and what the book really is. And he tells us that Solomon, in his opinion, has served God well with this book. And notice in chapter 12, verse 9, when it begins by saying, and moreover, that is in conclusion, or furthermore, some of your Bibles, in conclusion, because the preacher was wise. Preacher is that word that is Ecclesiastes, referring to a wise man who calls an assembly to teach. When we think of the nation of Israel, uh, there are four people, uh, four groups of people that had special significance to the nation of Israel uh, that no one else had. They were revered. Uh, they were looked upon as God's special servants. The first one was king, the man who was a king. There weren't many that were kings, and there were only a few but the king, God's personal representative on earth. That's the way he was looked upon, and he was. And we know King David was an outstanding king, and Solomon was too in the beginning of his career. The king. Secondly, there are also those who were priests called by God from the tribe of Levi to serve God in the temple, and some of them who would be able to go into the presence of God, only one man once a year, but there was this very limited group of people who were able to serve God, and they were held with esteem, set apart by God for a very special purpose. The third group that was revered were the prophets. These were men that God raised up to give to his people specific messages. And again, very few, but very, very distinguished. Uh, they were people who, like the kings and the priests, the prophets, they had positions that, that uh, were very significant for the nation of Israel. The fourth group, there were wise men. And ladies, you'll be interested to know that there are times in the Bible where women are referred to as wise women. But wise men were also men, uh, predominantly, that were raised by God, gifted by God, not only to understand life, but they were used to teach the fear of the Lord. That was their purpose. So these four groups of people, kings, priests, prophets, wise men, were uh, an established uh, minority 
but were of very great importance to the nation of Israel. In verse 9, when he says, because the preacher was wise, it, he's not thinking of a moment where, oh, that was a great response, or that was a great decision. Or, wasn't it great the way he asked that question? Not, not a momentary uh, time of being wise, but this giftedness that God had given him. He was one of the wise men. And in the rest of verses 9 and 10, he gives us eight phrases where he describes Solomon's life and ministry as he performed as a wise man. Let's notice them together because they all have to do with the book of Ecclesiastes. He taught the people knowledge. Far beyond the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon was involved in teaching the people uh, knowledge. And it, it, uh, that was a main ministry of those who were wise. The next phrase, he gave good heed. Uh, that is, he listened to people. He pondered. There's a word of balance there. The next phrase, he sought out. That is, he investigated. The word has to do with diligence as well as thoroughness, but he listened, he thought things through, he dug deep into the subjects that he was thinking about and set in order many, it says, Proverbs. And you see that from chapter 7 through the end of the book here. But he put in good order. That refers to skill in arrangement. And what what the editor is doing, the man who is concluding the book here, as he looks back and talk, talks about Solomon, he's giving us his credentials and telling us that he was incredibly gifted and had done a good job, not only in the book of Ecclesiastes, but in his wider ministry. Notice verse 10. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, um, sought out, had to do with investigate, uh, acceptable, some of your Bibles, pleasant words or words of delight that have to do with effect. And he's talking about the way he puts things together as he writes. Um, in pastoring circles, there is a big difference between missionaries who are on the mission field and pastors who are uh, on the home field, if I can say it that way. One difference, not a chrism, just difference, is that in third world countries, if a missionary is there, there is no recognition of time. <laughs> there just isn't. Uh, they have time to talk. They have time to interact. Nobody's in a hurry. They have time to eat. They have time to plan an event. Church services can go for hours or half a day on a third world country. It's because they don't have a lot, so when they do get together, they really value the time that they have together, and that's fine. It's the way it should be for the missionary to develop those good relationships with people. But when the missionary comes home, he's challenged, or she is challenged, because now they have to present things in a 30-minute segment. Their time goes from here to here, and they have to be clear, crisp, concise. That's a struggle for some of our missionaries coming back. They really have to work on that because it doesn't come easy for them. It's not natural for them. What he's talking about here is that Solomon, he, 
He made words clear, crisp, and concise, and he chose the words that would leave the greatest impact. He, he was a master at presenting things. And then it says also that, uh, talking about his words, which uh, those which were written were upright, it's a word for righteousness, even words of truth. Not just words that men would speak or men would come up with. People recognize that in this case, Solomon, when he spoke to them, he gave them God's word, righteous words, words of truth. And as he looks back, uh, the editor looks back over the book, he tells us that Solomon has put this book together in a skillful, masterly way for the right impact upon people, for their right understanding of issues in life. And as I look at this, I have to be honest with you, when I began studying the book and reading it, uh, I thought, well, this doesn't make any sense. How does this fit together? What's he getting at? Thinking about not only what I'm reading, but what am I gonna present? How am I gonna present these things? And I could not always see the order, but he's telling us now, when we come to the end of the book, when you look back, now you'll be able to see the meaning and the purpose and understand the impact that he was trying to have. And it's, uh, it's really quite a challenge uh, because uh, we don't see it to begin with. Notice in chapter 12, verse 11, you almost have to grow into the understanding of Ecclesiastes, and I hope that you have. I hope you're much more comfortable with it now than when we first started. But notice trying to uh, make an illustration. He says, the words of the wise, again referring to this book, are as goads or goads in the nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And he's using a scene from agriculture, a shepherd taking care of uh, goats or cattle. Time would have a long stick that would have a nail in it, and he would use that to poke the area of the individual, uh, the, the, uh, the, the cattle or, or the, the goats, uh, to get them to go in a particular direction, maybe to get them back in line, maybe they were kind of unruly, but uh, it was kind of painful, you know, somebody stick you with a needle, but it was to help these animals to get back in line and continue their journey. And what he's saying here is that Solomon's words have actually been like that for people who have been listening. So as Solomon has gone through his, his observations and said uh, these statements of turmoil, it's all meaningless. It's, he's wrestling with his circumstances. He's blaming God. He's, he's talking about everything that's wrong and that people are wrong. Life is, it's, as one man said, a doom and gloom book. When he's doing that, these phrases and the observations have been put together to be like mirrors so that when people hear these words and think about what's being presented, they will come face to face with themselves. And some of them, I'm sure over the years, people even in, in our generation 
reading this would come up with a conclusion, I sound just like that. I just said that. Well, that's the way I'm thinking. I'm not trusting God. I'm putting too much emphasis on finances. I am too busy. I am too concerned about what is unfair. I'm not trusting God. I'm not believing in God. And these observations have been skillfully put together so that people can see themselves and be confronted with what they're doing. And God's word is at times painful the way it speaks to us. We've all had that experience where we're set, sitting in church or just reading uh, a Bible at home or devotional and something just goes right to our heart. Uh, God's word is like that. It's supposed to be like that uh, to help us to know that God really is with us and, and we need to be careful with our lives. Sometimes it's encouragement, but sometimes it's, it's very cutting because we like a sheep or a goat, we've gotten off the path or we've been a little stubborn and, and it's been kind of a rebuke. But all of these things have been put together so that uh, people can be helped. And I have on the screen, we are told that Solomon, this man says that he was a wise man, but that he was a good pastor. All of these phrases in verses 9 and 10, even the illustration from verse 11, talks about a man who's concerned for people. And he was a good pastor. And if you've never seen this, notice verse 12, because he's also a dad, the editor, the one who's introducing the book and closing it. Notice what it says in verse 12. And further by these, my son, be admonished. We might come back to that a little bit later. But the writer has put this together to help his son. It's kind of neat, isn't it, to know this in this particular way. Let me go on to the next one, because I need to ask the question, and I have this on the screen, so why uh, is this book so difficult and so negative? I'm uh, talking with a man in the military this last week, a friend of mine who said that that he's never really studied the book of Ecclesiastes. He's in his early 30s. He said, because every time he starts, he just thinks of it as a book of doom and gloom. He says, it's kind of a downer. And uh, reading the first couple of chapters, you would see that vanity of vanity, all his vanities. And so he's never really gotten into that. And let me, let me ex uh, kind of explain why this book has been so difficult. And again, if this is not clear, if it doesn't become clear now, I hope that it already has become. I hope that you'll understand what I'm saying. I have a picture here of a finger that's being, that has been uh, sutured, uh, needed some stitches because it had been cut uh, <clears throat> last Last year at Thanksgiving, our families were together. Uh, Sarah and I went up to be with our son, his family, our daughter, her family came up and uh, all of us together. They've been very good to do that uh, every year for us since they've been married. And we've just had a great time and uh, everybody else was outside. John was doing some things with them and uh, uh, Greg was in uh, the house just cleaning up some of the kitchens and he was cleaning the knives of all things, the last thing. 
And he's always told his girls, you have to be very careful when you handle the knife, any knife. And he knew what he was doing was something that maybe he shouldn't be doing and something happened, it slipped. Anyway, he cut the palm of his hand very deeply and immediately he knew it was very deep. And he just held his hand, didn't look at it, didn't open it, just held it thought to himself, what am I going to do? i got to at least check to see what's happened here. But he knew it had been very deeply cut. And when he opened his hand to see what happened, blood gushed everywhere. <laughs> it was awful. And he puts his hand back, he gets a towel and wraps it up, finds his wife, they go to the hospital, he gets sutured up. And he was more embarrassed than hurt. And fortunately, he did not sever a tendon or a muscle or even deeper. He did not sever any nerves because you know what happens when that takes place. If you cut a nerve, your limb, whether it's a finger, it's a hand, it's a foot, whatever it might be, uh, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It just doesn't. You need the nerves to be together. It just doesn't work. And it takes a long time of therapy and hopefully successful surgery for the nerves to be able to regenerate and connect so that that part of the body can, can work again uh, the way it had been. Unfortunately for Greg, it was no big deal. Again, mostly embarrassment, but uh, he, uh, he was very fortunate. And the reason I share that with you is that the nation of Israel because they had not walked with God, were conquered by Babylon and taken away into captivity for 70 years. You know the story. When they had been allowed to come back into the land, they had rebuilt the temple, they had rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, God raised up minor prophets, prophets that talked uh, spoke about a glorious future, the Savior coming. Uh, Israel uh, would lead the world as the world would become under the control of God. And God would make all things right. And it, and it portrayed a wonderful future, still does, for the nation of Israel. But as the people came back into the land, they were still conquered. Life was hard. Not a lot of glory. Not a lot of change. And not just for one generation, not even two generations, more than three generations, more than four generations before God's plan begins to get back on track as we think of the Savior coming to the world. And the people of Israel, as they looked at their lives, believing in God and trusting God had become to them like a severed nerve. Uh, the, many people had become cynical. Uh, they had become disillusioned. Uh, they were angry with God. They uh, were on the edge of becoming people of unbelief. And some of that, a lot of that has to do with why the book of Ecclesiastes was put together in this way. This idea that 
as we hear Solomon in the beginning of the book, life is meaningless. It's not fair. People are not fair. It's painful. Life is not manageable. It's so disappointing. And it's all God's fault. Remember some of those expressions. These are some of the things that the people of Israel were wrestling with. That's the way that some of them were thinking. That's the way some of them were talking and, and feeling. And again, they were on the edge, some of them, of becoming people of unbelief. This spiritual connection to God, this tragedy in life that had lasted several generations, had been like a severed nerve. And this book has been written to help them to see that. So when we think of the book of Ecclesiastes, we wonder, well, why is it so difficult? Why is it so negative? Well, on one hand, we are hearing what the people feel like, uh, how they are becoming cynical, how life looks absolutely empty to them. There's nothing good, nothing fair, nothing right. They're disillusioned with everything because that's the way some of them were living. And they, were they had concluded that life was like that. That's one presentation, and that's why Solomon speaks the way he does. But secondly, almost like dueling voices, competing voices, Solomon begins to say, you need to get your eyes on God. You need to stop whining. You need to remember that God is still God in all of his glory. He is in control of everything. He knows exactly what he's doing. And God will care for you right now if you'll just open your eyes and see it. There are gifts that God has brought into your life. God is caring for you. And so you have these two competing voices. On one hand, it's entirely negative. And the other, there's this gentle, quiet, and yet subtle call back to bringing them back to God. And when you, if we had time to go back and look at the book in detail, we, we could easily see what Solomon is saying. Life is so unfair. This is terrible. This is meaningless. And then we would notice how Solomon smashes that argument, completely smashes it. And going through the book, if you took the time, if we had the time, we could show you that every argument of meaninglessness and difficulty in this world is matched by you need to get your eyes on God. Let me show you one of those. Solomon spends the first two chapters talking about all the things that he has done to find meaning in life and that it's not work. In chapter three, he begins by saying, there's a time for this, a time for that, you remember? He begins by saying, every event in this world has been ordered by God. And then he says, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, and we went through this when life is against us. And the conclusion is that life is out of control, completely out of control. No, it just jerks us around, and we talked about that in, in chapter three. But in the same chapter, he immediately says, no, God is in control. Remember those verses? God will make all things beautiful in his time. God has already 
determined the events that are going to happen in this world. He is good, and, and you have life as out of control, then you have, no, he's not. After that, at the very end of chapter th 3, we notice on the left you have in the screen, the writer says, but things are not right. Uh, in the courts of law, things are all mixed up. Things are not right. Powerful people are not doing what they're supposed to. Things are not right. People are not right. And yet right after that, Solomon brings in the words, yes, but God will make things right. To balance that out, don't get stuck here. God is still in control. Goes into chapter 4 where Solomon tells us by observation how much life hurts, how it's painful. That's when we have the oppressor, no one to comfort, a lot of tears. And yet so quickly he says, yes, but life can be good now. Look at the gifts that God has given to people. You can have good. You can have cheer in your heart. And these things are competing against each other, but really Solomon is wisely challenging every expression of unbelief, encouraging his people to come back to God and to put aside their narrow view of life and to realize that uh, it's not right for them to forget God. Once they forget God, their perspective of life is so distorted. The book of Ecclesiastes is really designed to help us to know how to live in a world that can be so very empty how we can live in a world that can make life very empty and meaningless. Because it does. People who set God aside will always have an empty and meaningful life. You can't have a meaningful life, a full life, just by this world. We, there needs to be a personal relationship with God through Christ and salvation. And so that's the key. That's that's what the, really is driving this book. The difficulty that the nation of Israel has had for several generations has had an effect upon their spiritual nerve. It's almost like it's been injured. And he is writing to help the people to look beyond what's happening now, to enable them to get back on course, and to help them to see that with God, life can be good no matter what. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at uh, the subject, how can we find meaning in life when death comes? Uh, the reason we're going to be looking at that is that throughout the book, he constantly grieves over death, Solomon does. And he talks as much about it in chapters 7 through 12 as he does in 1 through 6. He really does. And so we want to just look at that. But after that, something that you can look at in your own leisure, I'm going to be putting together some applications. What are some of the things that we are to learn as a result of our time with the uh, uh, book of Ecclesiastes? Uh, one practical thing is this. We should not be surprised if a faithful Christian, a special person in our life who's walked with the Lord, 
we should not be surprised if tragedy or hardship strikes that person, man or woman, shouldn't surprise if, if there's a time where they are not able to get their feet on the ground, spiritually, personally. It shouldn't surprise us that sometimes people with a heart events in life, they're kind of knocked back and they lose a step, they lose perspective. That shouldn't, we shouldn't come to wrong conclusions about people when they have to struggle. We should understand what's happening. When a nerve is severed, it takes a while for those things to grow back together. And sometimes what happens in a severed nerve in our hand also happens in our faith walk too. But let me go back to the book. What we're seeing here is that there is a specific conclusion to this book as the man looks back over the book this man we call the editor. Uh, he says that Solomon was really a very wise man. God used him in writing this book. He put it together in a skillful, very masterly way. He's writing for his son. But he wants us to see the conclusion. By the end of the book, everybody should come to this conclusion. If they don't, he's going to make it their conclusion. Notice the verses that I have on the screen or looking at your Bible. In chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the last two verses, this is the grand conclusion, where he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil, and that is the conclusion. Uh, the conclusion, when everything has been heard, is this, fear God, keep his commandments. Now, I want to uh, share with you just a little bit of Hebrew because in our English versions, I'll go back to this, different translations try to write different phrases to make it smooth, I understand that, uh, they want it to be more in a prose or an English grammar form so that people can understand it. But when he is writing this, he is writing it with Hebrew power and punch. He's closing his book. He's bringing everything to its conclusion. And the first word is the end. That's it. End, period. <laughs> That's it. End. The matter. All of it, those are the first three phrases in this, in verse 13 in the Hebrew Bible. The end, the matter, all of it. Everything that needed to be said has been said. There's no more that's needed. We're done with this. Let's wrap it up. This is our conclusion. And, and he's, he's saying that there's, nothing else that there's nothing else that needs to be said. It's very brief. It's very much to the point. And when he says this, he is kind of grabbing their attention, very Jewish. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, I have verses that are written on the screen. I hope you can see it. Each passage refers to a time when the author, Solomon, 
has directed people to look specifically and clearly at God. And in fact, turn back to chapter 2, verse 24. Let me show you the first time he does this. And notice how clear it is. Chapter 2, he's been making a lot of observations. The conclusion is it's all meaningless. And then all of a sudden, we refer to this as a major turning point in verse 22, or I'm sorry, verse 24. There is nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and that she, he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. And quickly he introduces God. This is the first time in a positive way he speaks of God. God is there to care for people, to give them good in their life. For who can eat or who, what else uh, can we have uh, more than I? Some of the Hebrew Bibles more than him. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. To, to the sinner he gives travail to gather up to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. But notice God is active and, and, and God is there to help men, to encourage men. And back up on the screen in chapter 3, verse 14, we are told that we need to fear God. Chapter 5, verse 7, we are told again that we are to fear God. Chapter 7, verse 18, we are told men are to fear God. It's important they need to fear God. Chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, he gives kind of a double hammer. In fact, turn there in chapter 8, and you can see that. And the reason I want you to see this is that this idea of fearing God is not just here at the end, it's been given to us throughout the book. Chapter 2, chapter 2, 3, 5, 7, and 8. Chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet surely I know that it will be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are a shadow, because he feareth not before God. And so this theme of fearing God has been taught, touched on one, two, three, four, at least five times before we get to this particular chapter. Fear God. Keep His commandments. The when everything has been heard, it comes down to this. You need to fear God and keep his commandments. The first time that he brings up the area of commandments, that tells us that God's word is very important. It gives us the heart of what being an Israelite is, worshiping God, following his word. It's the, still the same today, isn't it? God's children, we are to be known by the way we worship him and obey his word. Of course, follow the example of Christ. But the conclusion, when everything has been said, fear God, keep his commandments, and then it says this applies to every person. Now, do you remember when I said that in the Hebrew, when it begins, that you have these blunt, strong words just getting their attention? This is it. There's no more that needs to be said. Well, the same thing happens with this phrase, this applies to every person. 
the King James Version, this is the whole duty of man. The phrase that you have here, and I know you can't read it in Hebrew, but I can. Let me just share with you what it says. The first one on the right, because in Hebrew we read from right to left, that little squiggly thing there. Uh, looks like a target circle for the target stores, but part of it's broke off. Where it is indeed, it's a word for emphasis, listen up. The next phrase, this. The next phrase, all for man. Listen up, this is all for man. And he has used that phrase three other times in this book where he's talked about this is what all men need to be seeing. This is what all men need to be doing. When it says it's, it's uh, what men should be doing is to enjoy his gifts, they use this phrase. All men should enjoy, all men everywhere should enjoy the gifts that God's bringing to them. All men everywhere should be sensitive to this or that. And so he has been building this case of our duty to fear God throughout the book, and he's just bringing these two themes to a conclusion as they come together. It's, it's really incredible how he does that. And the reason is this, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Now, just think about that. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or it is evil. God will judge every person, period. Period, every person. Judgment is not always negative. It means evaluation. And he does say, God knows there's a difference in this world. There are some things that are good, that's good. There are some things that are evil. Some things will be rewarded. Some things will be punished. So the idea that we will be judged, yeah, every person will be judged, everything, everything that's hidden, every act. And all of a sudden, that simple statement changes the whole complexion of the book of Ecclesiastes. Because when you set God aside and you see everything meaningless, you say there is no meaning to anything. Everything is meaningless. Nothing means anything. This verse tells us everything means something. Everything is important. When you look at life without God, it's total doom and gloom. But when you come to this verse, we are reminded that God, who oversees all of his creation and who has been caring for men, who will make everything right, who wants to bless his people. God is a God who can be loved and feared and worshiped no matter what. It just, it just changes so much. And uh, I think one of the things that it happens, uh, happens here is it reminds the people that in a world where things are not right, God knows the difference between right and wrong. He really does. And men don't get the opportunity to define what is right or wrong, what is good or what is evil. 
you know, today in our system, in our culture, this politically correct culture, there's nothing wrong anymore. And you can't say this is wrong when there are people who are saying, no, this is right. I've got my right to do this. God doesn't have that problem. And in the Bible, we are told specifically what is right will always be right. What is wrong will always be right. He's already defined the terms and set up the boundaries. There's no question about that. And nothing that men can do that can change that. The focus is away from the meaninglessness of life without God to a God that is whole, that is good, that has been caring for us, that loves us, that knows that life is not always right and fair, but a God who will make things, all things beautiful in his time, a God who will care for his people. And so what he's saying is that to his son, as the editor puts this together, is that his son needs to be very careful that he needs to understand that no matter how he feels, no matter what he thinks, no matter what he sees, even if he's come to the place where he's going to shake his finger at God and blame God for all these hardships in his life, he needs to remember that regardless of what's happening or how he feels, it is his duty to walk with God, to fear God, and to keep his commandments. That's it. He doesn't get a pass. And he needs to understand that living in this world will always be empty if God is not honored. But when God is honored, God will take care of his people. So be faithful to your Hebrew roots, is what this father is saying to his son. Be faithful to God, and he will take care of you. The book also, I think, makes it very clear to us as Christians. We are not to live with the illusion that life will always be comfortable. It won't be, we've already learned that. Life will not always be fair. People will not always be fair or treat us right. Life is not always manageable. We're not to live with the illusion that everything's always going to be all right. That's, that's not realistic. But what we are taught in this book is that God is prepared to care for us no matter what, and that we need to be focused upon God and refuse to let this world in its turmoil pull us away from God. So I hope this has helped as it relates to a conclusion. Uh, Solomon has been very wise in putting this together. The reason it's difficult is because of these two voices, the problems that people are having. Solomon knows it. He shares the observation. But he's trying to bring them back to God. And as the end is clearly stated, that's where they should be. So here we have it, the conclusion of the book. And I do appreciate your faithfulness of staying with us for these studies. So let's, let's talk about the conclusion and are you able to see the themes? Okay, thanks for being with us.